Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Prime Minister has announced this session of government is over. He has prorogued Parliament until September 23rd. Good move or bad move? Well, we'll talk about that. And Christia Freeland is officially the first federal female finance minister. She doesn't have base experience, but is that really that important? We'll get some opinions on that. And Ontario supply teachers are feeling left out of the conversation on education plans, and they're concerned about health and safety making ends meet at the same time. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Prime Minister had announced that this session of government is going to be prorogued until September 23rd. Uh, this, of course, is taking place in the midst of a pandemic as well as an ethics scandal, the We Charity, of course. So a lot of people are a little upset about this, or some raised eyebrows about this, but uh, the Prime Minister explained it this way. Stephen Harper and the Conservatives prorogued Parliament in order to shut it down and avoid a confidence vote. We are prorogging Parliament to bring it back on exactly the same week it was supposed to come back anyway and force a confidence vote. Uh, does that assuage some of the concerns? Well, let's uh, talk about that. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Duff. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? Good. Were you surprised by this move by the Prime Minister yesterday? No, uh, but I don't think it helps him very much. And uh, I think, actually, Minister Morneau uh, walking away helps him a bit more, but also indicates that the government has a bit of a uh, uh, crisis situation on its hands. So overall, nothing much is, is going to help them. Uh, it's only going to delay accountability and, and a bunch of issues for a month. Um, but you know, I've always been told don't even issue a news release at this time of year because even the media is on holiday. So I don't think delaying things is going to help them overall. It's there's actually going to be far more people paying attention when Parliament does come back. And I think it would have been better to let things run for the next few weeks because so many people are on holiday and, and not watching the news as closely as they will be in September when they're back. There's obviously a couple of different perspectives on this. Uh, the opposition MPs, as we would have expected with an, almost any announcement, uh, have condemned the Prime Minister for doing this and say, he, I think Andrew Shears said he was spineless. Uh, liberal strategists that have come forward now said, look, at all we're doing is hitting the reset button. What's the big deal? Uh, wh- wh- is it a big deal? Well, it is escaping some accountability. Um, but it's a minority government, and as I say, it, you know, I think it would have been better to let thing, the committees run right now um, and continue their hearings on the We Charity scandal, again, because the last two weeks of August are when lots of people take holidays, the first week of September as well, right up to Labor Day, and uh, that means fewer people paying attention to the news generally. Uh, so I don't think it's going to help them at all. Uh, a prorogation during the time when Parliament would be adjourned anyway, that's what Democracy Watch has recommended, be the actual law, that that's the only time you can prorogue, so that you would not be able to stop Parliament when parliamentarians are trying to hold you accountable for something. But people should remember, the bigger scandal really is that Trudeau has effectively shut down Parliament since mid-March. It has not been open. It has not been operating regularly. Only committees have been. And the NDP, who forgot the D in their name, which stands for Democratic, supported the Liberals in doing this. There was no reason to shut down Parliament in mid-March. They could have taken a couple weeks to adjust and had a representative sample of MPs there every day ever since, doing regular question period and having regular motions from the opposition. And that's the real uh, scandal of what the Liberals have done in terms of uh, 
keeping Parliament effectively closed uh, since mid-March. Let's walk us through this, maybe, because there's an awful lot of confusion every time we talk about proroguing. And I know, and, and I know the Prime Minister referenced the Stephen Harper situation, and uh, that was probably because of the uh, the Stefan Dion, Jack Layton, and uh, Gilles Duceppe attempt to uh, say that you know we we can run the government, we don't need these guys in a minority government. And he went to the Governor General, and we know what happened in that situation. Uh, this one again, some people are suggesting he's doing this to avoid the weak controversy. Uh, business is suspended, isn't it? But I mean, you can you can go back in September 23rd. Those committees are still going to be there, right? Yes, the members may change. The Liberals may uh, put some other people forward, and the opposition parties as well. But the committees—it's uh, a whole new parliament. It's not just adjourned right now. Everything is shut down. Everything is closed down, and every committee has to restart and have a meeting to set its new agenda. Um, but again, uh, you know, the, we've had a document dump recently uh, of thousands of pages to the finance committee. Uh, the, there are stories today about what those, those documents show, some of them. They don't make Minister Morna look good. It looks like he, he said already, he testified that he directed his staff to stay involved in the WE charity, uh, in the whole uh, contracting process for the youth volunteer service program. And there's evidence in there of one of his senior advisors essentially pushing the, the WE charity through the process. So that would be bad for Morneau, and they knew that that was coming out, obviously. Uh, but the committees have to restart, but they will restart with these and, and other issues they, uh, and situations they think are uh, questionable because it's a minority government. The opposition parties uh, are uh, control of the committees. They have the majority of seats on the committees, and they will definitely continue the hearings. I don't think there will be a non-confidence vote, uh, despite the bloc's uh, threat that unless Trudeau and his chief of staff and Morneau all resign, that he'll push for non-confidence. I don't think he'll get support from the other parties, and uh, the government will continue, but uh, with very weak support and with lots of committees looking into the goings-on and the spending of the government, which should receive a lot of scrutiny because a lot of money has gone out the door with little scrutiny in the past several months. The wild card here is that uh, when they do get back on September 23rd, the Conservatives, the official opposition, uh, will have a new leader. Uh, probably either Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole, uh, although we, we hate to predict these sorts of things, given what's happened in past circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> How much of a factor is that going to be? Um, well, I, I don't think uh, it will change much in terms of overall agenda. I don't think the Conservatives will say an election is it would be great for them at this time. Why not continue for several more months, if not years, with the committees being controlled by the opposition parties holding hearings on what anything they think is a liberal scandal? I mean, that's a much better way for the opposition parties, all of them, to go ahead. Um, I think the bloc leader uh, said he'll vote, he'll call on his MPs to vote non-confidence in the government. With it, unless all these people resign, including the Prime Minister, which isn't going to happen, as sort of a bluff to, so that he can say, well, look, those other parties supported the Liberals. And he's kind of forcing them to vote in favor of the Liberals, or at least the New Democrats to vote in favor to keep the government alive. And, you know, the New Democrats are trying to recover in Quebec, and, and they, are, they were a threat to the bloc two elections ago and could come back. So it's a smart move from the bloc's perspective with no real downside for them but the NDP is in massive debt the conservatives will have the will have a new leader uh, 
they'll want the new leader to be known better known by the public before forcing an election as well forcing an election with all the difficulties we would have voting safely at this time i think any party that forces an election uh, while the, the coronavirus is still uh, endangering uh, canadians across the country will be will face blame from the canadians uh, from canadians and 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 wrath from voters so I think things will continue largely as they are now, and I think again the Liberals would have been smart to just let them continue right now. Um, there will be lots of media coverage of the Conservatives' leadership vote, which would distract from the We Charity committee hearings, and instead those committee hearings will be happening in September with nothing much else going on and lots more people paying attention. So I think actually it was it was a bad move by by Trudeau to to prorogue right now, and uh, and will hurt him. To your point, though, Duff, uh, you know, as as this was starting to fester, and and the the rumors at that time about Morneau uh, soon to be departed, which eventually did happen, of course. Uh, earlier this week, of course, the Main Street poll came out that said that the Liberals, in spite of all that, still had a pretty significant lead over the Conservatives in public opinion polls, which is not to su- suggest that they're Teflon, but you, it, it may well be, as you mentioned, because people just aren't paying attention right now. Yes, and um, and also. You know the liberals are still spending lots of money, in in uh, which are helping lots of of people, but a lot of that spending runs out, and the deferrals that banks gave to some customers on mortgages and credit card payments, uh, those run out as well in September, and it's possible. It's really always hard to know why someone makes a move like Bill Morneau has made, but. Um, it's possible that he did disagree with further spending and thought that instead uh, people should just have to figure things out by themselves. And the, and the prime minister said, no, we're going to do this, so you shouldn't stick around. Uh, but the liberals, yeah, they're, they're doing lots of spending, and most people view that uh, they've done some things well over the past several months, and that's why they still have the support. The conservatives are leaderless, so it's hard to know for people who might vote conservative who they would support without knowing the leader, because a lot of Canadian voters are driven by who the leader is of a party. So all those factors still favor the Liberals. I think it's not going to get any easier for them. I think it's actually going to get tougher in September when a lot of the funding support that they've provided so far starts to run out and, and people turn to them and say, what's happening now? And we're going to have all the committees that are holding hearings on We Charity and any other scandal they see with the Liberals, continuing to hold those hearings and starting them back up again in September. So uh, just a temporary uh, escape for the Liberals, but during a time when not a lot of people are paying attention and the spotlight will be back on them come September 22nd, that's for sure. There have been some uh, differing opinions about uh, a confidence vote. Um, some are suggesting it, it's form of all function, that it has to happen after proroguing. I, I don't remember that to be the case uh, well, in the past speech, circumstances. The vote from, on the speech from the throne is a confidence vote yeah. by tradition. Uh, the Watch has long suggested that what is a confidence vote should specifically be set down in law, as Britain has done. Uh, the U.K. has specifically that a vote of non-confidence in the government is only on a resolution that says the government the legislature does not have confidence in the government and we should have the same rule as well but traditionally in canada if the the government lost the speech from the throne vote 
that the government would be legitimately be able to say that's a non-confidence vote, and the prime minister would then have the choice of uh, going to the governor general and requesting an election, or stepping down and saying another party can try to rule. Um, so we we will have that, according to the views. If you talk to scholars across the country, uh, political science and constitutional scholars, they would say, yeah, a speech from the throne vote is is a confidence vote. So he is forcing a confidence vote by doing what he's doing. So that there's an inevitability, but I, I think your point's well taken. There's really nobody except maybe the bloc, and the bloc doesn't really want an election at this point either. But, I mean, you know, it's easy to throw that, that trial balloon up there when you know that nobody's going to grab at it. So that's No, that's right. The NDP has no money. They, they came out of the last election with $7 million in debt. Their fundraising has been fine this year, but they started January 1st $7 million in debt. So they're not out of debt. It would be hard for them to go into an next election. They would get a loan, but they would just put them further into debt. And their position, and, J- and Jagmeet Singh has made it clear with his statements in the last couple of days, their position is the Liberals are hurting because of the We Charity scandal, they, so they need to help a bunch of people. So we're going to push for pharmacare and dental care and, and national daycare and other kinds of national programs that we've always supported. And if the Liberals do them, then we'll, we'll applaud, uh, you know, and say we're part of the reason why. In a minority government, we've supported them doing these things. So that's, that's the NDP's priority, is to win those changes, as opposed to forcing an election where they would be, have, have a very weak uh, and difficult campaign, given their financial difficulties right now. Is that the, uh, the discussion that's going on now behind closed doors uh, between the NDP and the Liberals to say, you know, okay, what are you going to put in this throne speech that we would like? I'm sure there are at least some discussions. Um, they never want to talk about this because no party wants to be seen supporting another party. The Liberals don't want to be seen compromising. They want, they, we just have this tradition, in, even in minority governments, where the ruling party acts like it has a majority and doesn't have to compromise at all. But I know from the past, from talking to people in, in the NDP and the Liberals, when we've had minority governments in the past, uh, like when Paul Martin was in minority and even with the conservatives um the ndp and, and conservatives talked to each other and and the conservatives put in some things that the ndp wanted because the conservatives didn't want an election at certain times so those compromises happen behind closed doors and all the parties pretend that they're fighting with each other when in fact they're talking and cooperating in a minority government situation all of them trying to f- figure out to have the election at the best time for themselves and that's why I say Jagmeet Singh has made it very clear. Our priority is well, the liberals are weak, they have scandals they have to recover from, and we're going to try and extract as much as we can from them for the kind of uh, creating the kind of programs that we've always called for and supported, and we're and hoping to win them as opposed to forcing an election. And the bloc will be doing the same, despite the bluster from the bloc leader. He, he, the liberals will also be talking to him and saying, um, you know, what what do you want? But they never want to do that in public. It's kind of a silly thing that goes on, but it, it, it is happening behind closed doors, That rest assured. Duff, always great to get your perspective on uh, some very sticky issues. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, and I'll keep you up to date on as we hear back from the Ethics Commissioner and the yes. RCMP on our complaints with regard to the We Charity scandal. Absolutely. Th- I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Duff. Thank you. Take care. Stay Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and uh, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Christia Freeland was sworn in as the new finance minister after the resignation of Bill Morneau. Now, a lot of discussion and a lot of feedback, both positive and negative, about that decision. Uh, Christia Freeland does not have the Bay Street experience that Bill Morneau did, but is that really, really necessary? Is that a qualification that you actually have to have? She is, uh, if we're looking at firsts here, after the Kamala Harris appointment, of course, as Joe Biden's VP candidate, uh, Christia Freeland is now the first female finance minister on a federal level. The Ontario's had a couple of female finance ministers in, in their time. Uh, she has a breadth of experience, and she does have some fans. And in matter of fact, one of them, rather unexpectedly, is Ontario Premier Doug Ford. This is what he had to say. I want to congratulate my, my friend, my good friend, Christia Freeland. Uh, she's just an amazing person. Actually, I texted her this morning to say congratulations. I, I don't know how she's going to do it. She's she's working around the clock now, and uh, she couldn't do finance, but there's no one that would be better in that role than uh, Christia. Boy, when you get an endorsement from a progressive conservative premier, that's uh, that's news. That's headlines. Uh, but they seem to have developed a relationship because of a lot of the work that she has done. She has been the uh, the front person for a lot of the Trudeau government initiatives uh, in Ontario and in, in uh, Alberta, of course, trying to deal with Jason Kenney. So, uh, and, of course, there's some other stuff in her history on her CV that I think is, is worthy of discussion. So is she up for the job? Is she qualified for the job? That's what some of the critics are saying is that, no, this is, this is the wrong appointment. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University joins us to talk about this. Marvin, good morning. Good morning, Bill. Uh, over the course of the last number of years, we've had uh, quite a few occasions to speak about Christia Freeland because yep. she's wearing many, many hats, uh, the NAFTA negotiations, whatever, the new NAFTA, as it turns out. Uh, those that are suggesting that, well, you don't have that Bay Street experience so that you, you don't qualify, is there any, any water in that? Well, there might be a little, but Bill, let me let me try to put you, make you the Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, you, a qualification to be the Prime Minister is that you lead the party that got the most votes in the election. Uh, many people have joked that Justin Trudeau, you know, what has he actually done to earn the Prime Minister's job? Well, he led the party that got the most votes. So now, you have to put together a cabinet. The most important quality of every cabinet minister that you choose is competence. That means they do the job, and they do the job well. And competence is something that Christia Freeland has in spades. Now, do they have to have deep knowledge of, uh, of a subject matter? Again, to be candid, if I'm a um, prime minister and I'm looking at my bench of people, they weren't elected to give me a cross-section of talents. They were elected as MPs to represent local, local constituents across the country. So I might need to find an environment minister, but I don't have anybody with any environmental experience. Or I might need a minister of science, and I don't really have that. Or even a minister of agriculture. Maybe all I've got are urban people. So the first thing, I've got to look for competence, people who do that job well. And then in this case, um, she also has a history, a history of doing tremendously good things for the prime minister whether it was the, the NAFTA negotiations with Mr. Lighthizer and those ups and downs that led to actually a pretty solid deal, or in her brief time over the last year as Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, working with some fairly hostile premiers and yet not making front-page news, working behind the scenes and getting the job done. I don't necessarily think Christia Freeland's going to be the finance minister if this liberal government goes on for four years. I think she's the right person for now. You need a very competent person to step up, and especially given that the plan is in roughly uh, six weeks 
for a, a new uh, throne speech by the government and thus a budget. We never got a budget in 2020, so they're going to bring down a budget in late September or early October. She's got six weeks to make that happen with the staff, who of course have all the competence in the world, and um, and, and get that started. I think this government is going to have, if there isn't a major election this fall, some by-elections, and we may see a star candidate come in through one of those by-elections who could very well take over as finance minister, but for now, she is the best person for the job. And, and notwithstanding this idea of it, I mean, it's not as if she is brand new to the finance portfolio. I mean, uh, she was a journalist that covered finances, and, and she may not have had an office on Bay Street, but she spent a lot of time talking to folks on Bay Street and Wall Street, for that matter, too, yeah, yeah, which exactly. I think helped and put her go, in pretty good stead during the NAFTA negotiations. Yeah, if you go back through history, yes, there have been finance ministers who have tremendous business credentials. You think of Paul Martin, who ran Canadian steamship lines, in this case, Bill Morneau, who ran a very successful pension company called Morneau Chappelle. But um, I remember an Ontario finance minister by the name of Floyd Logren, whose mm -hmm. uh, big claim to fame was that he'd managed a Zeller's store before he became finance minister and was a farmer before that. You don't necessarily, or even Jim Flaherty, Jim Flaherty wasn't a, a deep rooted finance guy when he became finance minister. What you need is competence. You need people around you who know all the ins and outs and then be able to pick and choose from those things to assemble the material that your prime minister or premier needs. That's the biggest quality. Well, and the other side of this coin, and from a generic standpoint, but we can talk specifically about the Freeland situation here, uh, there people made their if if that's what you want to see at the top of the CV, as you mentioned, there's a lot of people that have got long, great careers on Bay Street. That doesn't mean they're going to be a good finance minister, because uh, you have to take that knowledge of finance, and you've got to marry it with politics, and that's very difficult for some people to do. Yeah, I think that's that's quite true, Bill. And also, uh, in some ways, it's a thankless job. Next to the prime minister, the one person who's going to be asked the most questions in question period is the finance minister. Uh, because dollars, whether it's tax dollars being collected or tax dollars being spent or programs or benefits, what have you, is the issue that's always at the top of mind of most Canadians. Uh, I don't tend to hear a lot of questions in question period for the science and innovation minister, but boy, do I hear it. And I think actually for Bill Morneau, that was probably the part of the job that he was least prepared for and least comfortable with. Uh, when you are a CEO of a company... Uh, much like Donald Trump was a CEO of a company, it's your way or the highway. If you don't like what I'm saying, there's the door, leave. You, you aren't responsible to anybody. You don't have to answer questions because I'm the CEO. But suddenly, when you're the finance minister, you have to stand up and take those questions from parties who have different opinions. And in fact, as you may know in question period, you could get a, a question from a conservative who argues that you haven't gone far enough on one area, and an NDP who said you've gone too far in the other, and you're sitting there saying, really? I have to answer both of these questions? One is the exact opposite of the other. But those are the rules of the game. That's the rules of engagement. And, and I, as I say, I don't think Mr. Morneau ever got overly comfortable with that, whereas Christia Freeland, she, uh, having the journalistic training, what have you, understands the way the game is played, understands the questions that are going to be asked, and knows how to frame an answer brilliantly. She she could have fallen into traps at any point during the NAFTA negotiations, and goodness knows both Mr. Trump and Mr. Lighthizer tried to bait her on many occasions, and she never swallowed the bait. That's what made her so good in that job. 
Well, and she drew the, drew the ire of the president, too, which I guess you know, that's a badge you can wear uh, proudly uh, to know that, you know, I was such a pain in the you-know-what that uh, he started uh, tweeting and talking about her uh, during the intense times of those negotiations, which I, I, I always took as a compliment. That means the Canadian contingent are, are hanging tough here, and uh, yeah. we saw the, the resulting deal. So, I mean, she, she's not intimidated, that's for sure. No, she's not intimidated. She is tough. Certainly, again, being finance minister, you've got to got to be tough. You've got to be ready for people to disagree with whatever you, you come out with here. And then you also have to have a bit of, of a suit of armor to you. You've got to take some of those slings and arrows and smile and keep moving forward from there. And she seems quite quite competent on that level. In fact, you know, Bill, I suppose maybe one of the ultimate compliments about Christia Freeland is many people think uh, if Justin Trudeau ever had to resign, she'd be the next logical choice for prime minister. My only concern, really, is not with Christia Freeland, but I think the Liberals need to start finding a couple of other bench strengths here. You need a couple of more Christia Freelands to be developed sitting in the wings. Heaven forbid, and I don't wish this upon anybody, obviously, but heaven forbid she were to be in a car crash, or heaven forbid she was to suddenly have chest pains and maybe develop a condition, who else do you go to? She's sort of the minister of everything, and we need a couple of other people who've got that kind of bench strength, uh, I think, for the liberals, if they're going to continue to govern. But when you've got a government that's, uh, let's face it, taken a few punches over the last little while, yep. and without getting into the, the how, what, and where, why, uh, you know, they're they're trying to catch their breath right now. This is probably the most important portfolio right now. The Prime Minister, whether it's Justin Trudeau or anybody else, has to know that whoever that finance minister is has got his back. He doesn't want to have to worry about that portfolio, especially, as you said, because this is going to be a very, very difficult time for the government because a lot of these programs that they instituted for COVID-19 have sunset clauses, and people are going to be saying, okay, what now? And that's that's really on the finance minister. Yeah, very much so, Bill. So. Uh, the proroguing which happened yesterday I think is also important. What, what I think Justin has in mind is this. Uh, hoping there's no second wave, we are emerging from COVID-19, but we are emerging as a bruised and battered nation. And so he would like to set a new agenda at the end of September, start of October, uh, for how we're going to finish this recovery. We have We have managed through this difficult time, whether it's the CERB or the um, commercial rent program or whatever it is, the wage subsidy, and that bought us some time. But what's the way forward for the next two or three years as we all try to rebuild and get back to where we were before the damage hit? So I think he wants to set a, a, a new tone. And I'm reading between the lines here, Bill. I'm really going out on a limb. I get the impression that Mr. Morneau wasn't quite uh, embracing of some kind of a grand new vision for Canada but I think what Mr. Trudeau wanted was something like that, that if, in, if he can't sell it in Parliament, at least he might be able to sell it in a snap election should it happen to be called. So proroguing Parliament gives he and Ms. Freeland and the people around them roughly six weeks to cobble together uh, a throne speech and a vision for what these next two or three years of recovery are going to look like, what are the cornerstones of this, um, and then present it to, the, to Canada. Uh, she was really good coming up with a vision for NAFTA that would last for the next 20 years. Now her challenge is to come up with a vision for Canada's economy for the next two or three years during the recovery. And, and I think that, I, I don't want to overhype this, but whenever you have Parliament recalled at the end of September, uh, expect a very interesting throne speech, something quite unlike what you would have heard uh, as recently as six months ago. 
We should also keep in mind, I guess, uh, since we're talking singularly here about Christia Freeland, uh, that running that portfolio or any portfolio, I guess, in, in government, it, it's it's not a one-person job. Uh, you know, there's a very, as you mentioned, a very capable and experienced uh, uh, bureaucratic staff that are there and who do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to putting budgets together. I mean, the direction certainly comes from the government, the finance minister and the prime minister, etc. But a lot of the, uh, you know, let's let's crunch some numbers right now. That's that's done in other offices. Oh, absolutely, Bill. Uh, you know, there is a. I know. I know the word bureaucracy bothers a lot of people because it always implies, I guess, something slow and hard to react and red tape, but it's actually the bureaucracy of government that, that does the day-to-day chores. The prime minister doesn't write the checks. The finance minister doesn't you know, uh, uh, write the, the law, the rule. There are staff below them that do this, and those people are still there and are ready, willing, and able to help Christia Freeland uh, uh, brief her, get her up to speed, and she, she's very good at getting the big picture, and then she'll have other people around her to fill in the short strokes. So I'm not, again, I'm not really worried when a, a minister changes like this. The government will move on, but I think this is a chance with a new finance minister and a new throne speech to set a, a new tone uh, for this recovery. And I'll also just put a big asterisk there to say this all assumes no second wave of COVID-19 this fall, and that's still far from clear. We've got a key date coming up in early September. That's the date that many school children are going back in all the provinces of Canada, not just Ontario. And we're all kind of holding our breath that I hope that all goes really well and smooth. Clearly, if it doesn't, we may again have a different kind of a throne speech than is planned at this moment. So lots of action going on here. It's a very volatile portfolio, to be sure. From a strategic, political strategic standpoint here, uh, is, is the move uh, Freeland to finance a one-off, or are you going to see some other faces change around the cabinet table? Yeah, that's a good question, Bill. Um, and I think part of that is uh, there are some liberals who, and for that matter, some conservative MPs, who have chosen to resign, and that's going to create the opportunity to have some by-elections this fall. Uh, a name that has been, um, what word do I want, uh, sort of whispered, whispered in the halls of Parliament, is a fellow you might know by the name of Mark Carney. Mark Heard Carney is the former governor of the Bank of Canada and then had the unprecedented uh, appointment as the governor of the Bank of England, first time in over 300 years that somebody who wasn't British did that job. Well, those appointments have all ended, and uh, although he has a, an appointment from the United Nations as some sort of global ambassador around economic development, he and his wife have moved back to Canada and at this point are informally advising the prime minister and probably the finance minister. But I'm wondering if he is signaling an interest in uh, uh, a role in government, and, and thus, uh, remember, Mr. Morneau is not just stepping down as finance minister, but giving up his seat. Mike Carney run in a by-election if he did, might he be the finance minister going into 2021? Those, I think, are interesting possibilities. So um, as these by-elections happen, look for some interesting high-profile candidates, and then let's see how they interact with the government of the day. Carney's a fascinating story. They, I saw the same rumor that you just referenced, and uh, the, they're speculating that he could run in the same riding, as you say, that Morneau had represented for right. the last couple of elections, and then simply and take over the same portfolio that, that, uh, that Morneau had, uh, that being finance. It's, it's interesting to see uh, the, the 
re- reaching out by the, the Trudeau government to Carney all of a sudden. Now, some people said that was really just a precursor to getting rid of Morneau, but uh, it's almost as if, if you look at this in the long term, and we may be able to talk about this if, in fact, there is a by-election, uh, they selected Morneau's replacement before they even let Morneau go. They knew who they wanted. <laughs> well, yes. You know, the, I, I don't know when we're ever going to know the real story. Uh, don't Please don't get me wrong. Mr. Morneau had this hastily press, called press conference Monday night to say, uh, I'm leaving. I never intended to be here for a, a third election, and I'd like to become the Secretary General of the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And I have no reason to doubt any of that, but why did he have to resign 7.30 on a Monday night to do that? He could have made that announcement the next morning or in a couple more weeks when he was on a short list of candidates or even when he was named he could do that. You know, it does feel to me like there may have been more to this story than meets the eye, even though no one is whispering about it. My only question and concern with Carney, again, no doubt a very, very competent person and would be a coup for any party, any party to attract Mark Carney as a candidate. It's just that, again, when you're the governor of Bank of Canada or the governor of Bank of England, you, you wear a suit of Teflon. Few people question your decisions because of that independence of the role. The minute you attach yourself to a party, and then if you did become a minister uh, and stand up and start justifying policy in the House, you get a, a whole level of scrutiny you never had before. And I'm just not sure why he would want to do that. I think I would much rather be uh, uh, an advisor in the wings or even maybe a member of Senate and come in that way around than to actually step into one of those ministers' jobs. He's had such a halo now for more than a decade. Why give that up? Well, stay tuned. Uh, Obviously, there's another shoe to fall in this, and we'll see what those ramifications are. Marvin, as always, thanks for the time today. Great talking with you. Great chatting with you, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The confrontational attitude that uh, seems to be happening uh, around the discussion about back to school and the, the government's plan and some of the response and, well, some of the pushback on some of those areas. And, and the government has responded to some of them. But uh, once again, there seems to be this uh, acrimonious relationship between uh, school, the, the, the ministry and the premier and uh, most certainly the teachers' unions. And uh, I think the Premier actually probably underscored that with his comments yesterday. I'm always going to listen to the doctors, and I'm going to listen to the doctors over the teachers' unions. It's plain and simple. <laughs> I'm listening to the health care. I'm not going to listen to, uh, you know, the head of the unions that are playing uh, politics. Or are they reflecting some of the concerns of parents? It's a, a, an either-or argument here, isn't it? Uh, I don't know where we're going to go with that one. I mean, obviously, they seem to have dug in their heels, and the teachers, and we've talked with a number of them, and parents groups, by the way, that are expressing some sincere concerns about that, and boards of education. Uh, we just heard from two of them, uh, the, the Thames Valley in London, and, of course, the Hamilton Board of Education, and they're not t- enthralled with this plan either, uh, because there's some gaps in this and some things that have yet to be addressed. Uh, one of those are supply teachers. I mean, there are going to be uh, uh, supply teachers involved in this system, as there have been in the past. And as a matter of fact, there might be even more reliance on this, as some teachers may decide to opt out, or there, God forbid there could be some illnesses. Uh, they have to fill in gaps. Now, you know, if you've ever talked with a supply teacher or been one maybe at one point in your life, uh, you don't always stay in the same school. I mean, you go where you're told to go, depending on where the the, the vacancy is in situations like that which is supposed to be and could well be a recipe for disaster because that's how the virus gets spread. I mean, do you remember the experience in long-term care homes 
one of the things that they said was a contributing factor to the to the spread of, of COVID in those long-term care homes was a number of the staff were working in two or three different homes because they're trying to make ends meet. They had they needed that income, that kind of job. Uh, is the same thing going to happen here? I want to bring Salima Kassam into the conversation for the Ontario Education Workers United, uh, who has some legitimate concerns about this stuff. Salima, thank you so much for joining us. Glad you could be with us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. That's, explain to us and, and outline your concern about, about the plan as it is right now. So I'm really frustrated at the lack of direction and absolute lack of funding from the Ministry of Education. With only two weeks to the start of the school year, we don't have a concrete plan for school reopenings. And parents and teachers are wondering what protocols will be in place to keep their you know, students and their children safe. At this point in the pandemic, we have some understanding of what measures need to be taken to mitigate risk and transmission. We know that COVID-19 spreads more readily indoors. We know that proper ventilation is extremely important. We know that masks and regular hand washing greatly reduce the spread. We know that social distancing is key. And so all of these health measures that, we, that have become common sense and common practice in our daily lives have been completely disregarded by the Ministry of Education when it comes to ensuring the safety of our students um, and our most marginalized populations. Yeah, and I understand that they've tried to address or they've attempted to show us if they're addressing some of these problems. And we saw Mr. Lecce's announcement last week where he suggested, yeah, you guys are concerned about ventilation systems. We're going to give you the uh, the, the freedom now to use your reserve funds for this. And uh, we just heard from Alex Johnstone from the Hamilton Board about that. And uh, first of all, that those funds are for rainy days. They're for things like roof leaks and, and a number of other things that can happen because it's pretty difficult to get money from the government on that. But... It doesn't really address the concern here. I mean, it's it's abdicating the responsibility. It's sort of like what uh, what you know Donald Trump did. You know, when COVID was raging there, and he basically said, "It's not my fault. It's up to the governors. You guys go do it." Uh, the provincial government needs to take the lead here. They are the Ministry of Education, and they seem to have simply said, "Now we're going to delegate this to the boards. It's, it's their problem." Exactly. So you you've kind of like hit the nail on the head. Uh, the Ministry of Education and the, Ontario, and the Ontario government is completely offloading their responsibility for keeping people safe, for ensuring safe uh, school reopenings in September onto school boards. Um, instead of providing, you know, true investment in public education, they're telling school boards to use uh, the funds that they have, which in many cases are inadequate to actually ensuring a safe uh, reopening in September. How concerned are you about what might happen and, and the reason i'm asking and i'll put this in this context other jurisdictions most of them south of the border but it, british columbia falls into that category too have already opened uh, because their school year starts earlier than for instance we do here in ontario but the concern here is that almost to a, a board every one of them that's reopened has seen a spike and it's some of them dramatic to the point where they've actually had to recant this and stop and say okay we got to shut these things down again for a while uh, some of them not so bad but they've still seen a spike uh if if i'm a parent of one of those children and one of those students i'm concerned about that are you uh, and, and are the teachers are the education assistants are the, the supply teachers uh, cognizant of, of what could be a, a rather in, interesting and severe risk i'm i you know personally i'm very scared to go back to school um and you know, I have vulnerable people in my family. I work with vulnerable communities who are at greater risk of contracting the virus. Um, I definitely feel like occasional teachers um, have been left out of the conversation and are aware of, of the risks that, that they are going to have to face in going back to school. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there's been a growing precaritization in the public education sector. So there's actually a second tier of equally qualified teachers 
um, including myself and support staff that are forced to take up short-term contractual work, working multiple jobs and still can't make ends meet. So this past year, I worked at four different schools in short-term contract positions, but it's actually very typical for occasional teachers to work at five different schools every single week and within that school day to be covering the absences of multiple teachers. So, you know, it obviously creates incredibly, uh, you know, an incredibly dangerous situation for both the people who work in schools as well as students in their communities. Um, and I think that parents um, and school communities have very legitimate fears. I don't think that it's safe for me to go back to school, and I don't think that it's safe for my students um, and people in my school community to go back to school with these plans. Well, as I use uh, as an example, just before you joined our conversation here, I, I looked at what happened with long-term care facilities, and that 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 whole aspect of, of staff working in different facilities is one of the reasons they say the, that the, the virus spread as quickly as it did. I mean, you may not even show a positive sign uh, and, and test positive, in fact, if there's going to be a, you know, some substantial testing done, but you could be a carrier and, and go from one school to another and be carrying that and pass that on. And Or, as you say, go back home and you've got people that are vulnerable uh, because of pre-existing conditions, uh, and you could pass it on to them. It might not impact you at all, but it can impact them much more significantly. Exactly. And I think that when we consider the role of vocational teachers in reopening schools in September, it's really important to look back at the crisis in long-term care homes. This crisis was caused by years of underfunding the public health care system and instead fueling money into private care homes where there's a lack of accountability and regulation. There is inadequate staffing and resources. Um, and many precarious healthcare workers in these long-term care homes, as you pointed out, um, who, by the way, are also disproportionately working class and racialized, were, were forced to work in multiple homes to make ends meet. And so they became vectors for the virus, tragically spreading it to vulnerable populations. And so I think we need to be really clear about something, right? Precaritization fuels the spread of the virus, and the situation for supply teachers is eerily similar. We don't have sick days or benefits, so like many of the families of the students that we teach, we're regularly forced to make the choice between putting ourselves in unsafe situations with no protection and being able to pay rent. And I don't think that anyone should have to make that choice, which is why guaranteeing things like basic income and paid sick days for all workers is essential to ensuring a safe school reopening plan. Um, if a student is sick, parents need to be able to take paid, paid time off work to ensure that their child is able to self-quarantine for 14 days. And similarly, I'm concerned that if I become exposed in a school, A, how will I be notified? And B, how will I afford to be able to self-isolate for 14 days? Well, there's a concern, but there's also, I think, in, in a lot of circles, a misconception about about salaries and things of this nature. I mean, and you hear this every time, this, uh, and sort of a conflict with the government and, and teachers' unions about something. They all seem to think that, you know, that people in, ed in the education field are making gobs and gobs of money. Mm -hmm. And... and to their point, I mean, at the the upper end of some of those uh, sales or those salary structures, there are some some pretty decent salaries at the upper end, but there's not a whole lot of people at the upper end, and not too many BMWs in the parking lots of some of these schools. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. you'd be I think a lot of people would be appalled if they found out what some education assistants and part-time teachers, uh, supply teachers, are actually being paid. Mm -hmm, absolutely, I'm a fully qualified teacher. I spent years in school. I have three degrees and a master's. Um, and I am on CERP this summer because I don't get paid over the summer. Um, I'm laid off every year at the end of the school year. I'm laid off um, every Christmas, every March break. So I don't get paid for these days. And I don't get paid nearly as much as uh, Stephen Lecce thinks that teachers get paid. 
um, many teachers are actually under the poverty line. So there's a second tier um, of workers who are not permanent teachers, who are equally qualified, um, who can't make ends meet. How do you respond to uh, the, the comment that we just played before you joined us here from Premier Ford, who simply said, "I don't listen to the teachers. I listen to the I listen to the medical people." You know what? Like, I think if we need to have, if we're if we're truly serious about having a safe reopening plan, we need to consult all the experts. So that includes medical professionals. It also includes uh, students and parents and families, and it includes education workers because we know how schools function and we know what's needed. Um, in order to ensure a safe reopening, right? We need paid sick days for all workers. We need to hire more custodians. We need to hire more teachers so that we can ensure adequate social distancing. We need small class sizes. We need updated ventilation systems. We need a nurse in every school. We need a social worker in every school. We need masks and provision of PPE for all people who work in schools and all students in schools. Um, You know, so... Uh, you know, throughout the pandemic, we've seen how COVID-19 and the school closures have disproportionately impacted working class, racialized, and in particular, Black families in the city. And over the past six months, in addition to my regular teaching duties, I've been working with fellow education workers to fund and distribute over 7,000 food boxes to students during the closures. So for the Minister of Education to say, and for the Premier of Ontario to say that teachers are unwilling to be flexible to ensure what's needed for a safe reopening plan uh, for students is absolutely insulting. My question to both of them is what have they been doing to ensure um, during the school closures the health, safety and well-being of school communities that they're supposed to serve? And what are they doing now to ensure that the ways in which school closures affected marginalized and racialized communities will not once again disproportionately affect these students when we return to school in the fall? And I think when you consider these questions, you quickly realize that Minister Lecce and Premier Ford um, and this government actually has zero commitment to protecting students and school communities. And I think I want to be clear on something because we've had a lot of discussions with parent groups, with teachers, uh, people like yourself, and and, and government officials. Uh, Both the Premier and the Education Minister have been on this program a number of times talking about what they want to do and and the rationale for it. And I don't dismiss for a second the fact that he needs to to lean heavily on on the medical experts. Uh, You know, I wish the guy south of the border did that more often. Uh, and, And we'd be in a better position, I think, everywhere globally if that were to happen. But... What I'm hearing from, from the people that are raising concerns uh, is, is that they're never, none of them are saying, I want to drive policy here. They're simply saying, let us be heard so that when you develop policy, at least some of our concerns are going to be addressed. And now, uh, instead of simply turning a blind ear and, and, or eye to, to a situation like this and saying, we, we don't think you deserve to be at the table, everybody should be at the table because the, if, if the vested interest here is in the children and the safety of the children. Absolutely. And I don't claim to be a health professional. I think that, you know, there are people who know more uh, than I do who would be able to speak to what safety protocols we need in schools to ensure the safety of people who work in them and who attend them. Um, but I absolutely think that all all parties and all stakeholders uh, need to be consulted um, in order to ensure that we have a truly safe reopening. Well, because there are so many examples of this, as we talked about, and social distancing is one of them. Uh, mask wearing, instead of being optional, should be mandatory. I mean, these are all discussions and debatable points that we've had societally. But it just seems that, okay, we're going to set up a, set, a different set of rules now uh, within the, the bricks and mortar of schools. And I, 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 I'm desperately trying to get an explanation as to why they think it should be different. The same rules should apply. I used the example the other day when I was talking to one of the teachers about this. <laughs> you know, if, if that 
an 11-year-old wants to go to McDonald's and, and get a hamburger, they've got to wait and social distance. They've got to be two meters apart. They've got to wait until the, the counter is clean before they can even go and put their order in, probably wearing a mask, obviously, you know, they, you know, before they actually start to eat their thing. But that stuff doesn't apply in the schools. Why not? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's really sad that as a teacher, I feel safer walking into a McDonald's or a grocery store than I do going back uh, to a school, to a job that, to a job that I love. Um, you know, I want to go back to school. I know my colleagues and my students want to get back to school. But what we're saying is that it has to be done safely, and that's going to cost a lot of money. And the Ministry of Education is not willing to provide the funding that's needed to ensure a safe September. Um, and, and I think that has to do with the fact that this government is not interested in investing in public education. It's not um, interested in, in putting uh, money into schools to ensure the health and safety of students. Instead, it's more interested in protecting big businesses, banks, and landlords than actually caring for communities. Well, the concern here is that this is going to go on for quite some time. I mean, this is not a two- or three-week experiment. Uh, you know, our, our, those medical offices of health that the Premier is relying on uh, are telling us that could well be into the spring before we even start to consider uh, moving away from a model like this. And, uh, and that's very much dependent upon whether or not there's going to be another wave uh, come the fall and the impact that that might have. So uh, whatever we're going to do, we have to make sure that it's going to be sustainable over a long period of time. And, and my concern, after talk, talking to people like you, Salima, and, and others, and including parent groups that we've talked about and talked with, is that do we need to do this the first week of September, or can we just let's hit the pause button and make sure that we do have those conversations and maybe address some of these issues? Right now, what I'm hearing from an awful lot of parents and teachers is, okay, the, you know, the medical officer of health, Dr. Williams, says that it's the best possible, you know, it's as good as it's going to get here, basically, but and the, nothing is 100% risk-free. We understand that. But every other medical professional in another one of those jurisdictions said the same thing before they started, and they had the spikes anyway. So I, I get that, that there could be no guarantees in situations like this, but have we covered every possible problem that could happen? I don't think we have. I don't think we have either. Um, and I think the frustrating part of this is that schools closed in March. So it's been several months uh, where we could have been planning uh, for a safe September. And, you know, only within the last week, uh, the last few weeks has the Ministry of Education been providing guidelines to school boards and completely offloading their responsibility onto them and asking them to figure out a safe plan with zero funding. Um, so with the timeline that we have, two weeks until school starts, I don't think that we're in a position to actually, uh, you know, create a safe September um, by September 8th. Um, but it's unfortunate because I think that had the ministry uh, actually worked with education partners and unions and school boards with the time that we had over the past few months, we could have been in school safely in September. Well, uh, as we mentioned, the government will once in a while uh, bend, if they don't break anyway, and start listening to some of these concerns. We've still got a little bit of time left. Let's uh, see how they respond to uh, what I'm starting to hear louder and louder voices about some of these concerns. Salima, thank you so much for the time today. Great having you on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Salima Kassan from the Ontario Education Workers United. Uh, and again, like I say, I know the Premier will have these daily briefings uh, every couple of days, I guess, depending on what they want to announce. But this is this is such a key element to this, because this is all about our kids' safety and, and going forward, making sure that we don't do this and then have to hit the stop button and go back to where we were back in March and April.
and uh, I'm not so sure that we've done everything or that the government's done everything that they need to do to address those concerns. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.